Hi, I'm Leah Simone Bowen, host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. Do you like stories about unsolved murders, scammers, and cults? If you're a true crime fan, Podcast Playlist can help you find a new addictive listen to add to your rotation. Find your favorite new true crime show by following Podcast Playlist everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 1959, if you dreamed of being famous, a singer, a dancer, a comedian, well, you would know when you'd arrived. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight. It was the moment you appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. The Ed Sullivan Show. For more than two decades, that's where millions of North Americans tuned in on Sunday nights to see and hear the latest and greatest entertainers. Julie Andrews. Buddy Holland. Nat King Cole. Edith. Louis Sachmo Armstrong. Here is Elvis. But it wasn't always a song and dance on Ed Sullivan. Somebody has said that freedom is everybody's business. And as a newspaper, I flew down to Cuba for this exclusive interview with Fidel Castro. Finally met him three hours by car beyond Havana at Montanza. It's January 11th, 1959. It's just 10 days after Fidel Castro's rebels toppled Batista's regime in Cuba. And Ed Sullivan has made the trip to meet the young revolutionary. In the interview, Sullivan is surrounded by Castro's men in what he describes as a forest of Tommy guns. But the tone is warm. Always pictured your army not as a a wonderful group of revolutionary youngsters who wanted to, to make corrections, they said your army was communist. And that you, you it lasts a little more than six minutes, and by the end of it, Castro is having a good laugh, trying out his English on Sullivan. The two are sharing a cozy handshake. Very glad and very happy for your honor. With the benefit of hindsight and 60 years of acrimony between the U.S. and Cuba, it's hard to believe that Ed Sullivan could have spoken these last words. You know, this is a fine young man, and a very smart young man. With the help of God and our prayers, and with the help of the American government, he will come up with the sort of democracy down there that America should have. But you see, in 1959, Fidel Castro was having his own Elvis moment. There was this brief historical window before the U.S. decided he was an existential threat to the American way, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, when his revolution was seen as heroic, even to some within the U.S. And the message of Castro and his Cuban revolution was spreading around the world. That put fear in the hearts of some. But Cuba was also an inspiration. Of course, it wouldn't last forever, but Castro was still riding a wave of goodwill when he arrived in Montreal a few months later. The revolutionary communist leader was invited by, get this, the Montreal Junior Chamber of Commerce. Mesdames, Messieurs, ladies and gentlemen, at the President of the Chamber of Commerce des Jeunes de Montréal, je déclare cette conférence ouverte. As President of the Junior Chamber of Commerce in Montreal, I now declare this press conference open. This all happened outside of formal diplomatic channels, and the Canadian government didn't want anything to do with the visit. But Castro was greeted at the airport by a huge crowd of admirers. He visited a children's hospital and spoke to the Chamber of Commerce. The mayor gave him the keys to the city. Primeramente, quiero decir bienvenido a Canada, señor Castro. 
Castro also gave a speech at the University of Montreal, and he wrapped up that speech with an invitation to the students to come visit Cuba. We know of at least one person in the audience who took him up on that invite. George Shooters was just about to graduate from his studies in sociology and economics. That summer, he'd traveled to Cuba as part of a delegation of agronomy students. He was impressed by what he saw in the fledgling socialist state, and he traveled to Cuba again in 1960. The experience was profound. It pushed Shooters to embrace radical left politics and the movement for Quebec independence. In the spring of 1963, right around the time Castro was fully embracing the Soviet Union, Shooters would co-found the Quebec Liberation Front, the FLQ. Now, I'm not saying that Fidel Castro deserves the credit or blame for the creation of the FLQ, just to say that the movement for Quebec independence was not happening in a vacuum. All over the world, colonized people were claiming independence and challenging political norms. Revolution was in the air. A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorism? The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. They intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Chapter 4, The Whole Wide World. It was like something out of a cheap paperback thriller, a plot to blow up national landmarks. The Statue of Liberty was one of the targets of four extremists, say the New York police, who rounded up the suspects through the work of an undercover policeman. Damage to national symbols was meant to mar Uncle Sam's image. And a second target was that Shrine of Liberty in Philadelphia. With dynamite obtained in Canada, the plotters were... This is a universal newsreel from February 16, 1965. It's not fiction. The plot involved three Negro extremists, and a white Canadian girl. And that white Canadian girl? She was a TV and radio host from Quebec. Michel Duclos of Montreal, who is affiliated with a group seeking independence for the province of Quebec. How Michel Duclos came to be involved in this intrigue says so much about the web of global connections among activists at the time. Just the summer before, a friend of Duclos had traveled to Cuba at the invitation of Fidel Castro. And while that friend was there, she met an American black rights activist named Robert Collier. She told Collier all about the FLQ and its fight for independence in Quebec. Keep in mind that Collier would have been in violation of a State Department travel ban just by being in Cuba. And the State Department would have been really miffed if they'd heard about Collier's travel itinerary. It included a seminar at the North Vietnamese Embassy, where an army major gave a talk on the use of explosives and guerrilla warfare. So Collier came home with all sorts of international inspiration. He'd eventually go on to co-found the New York chapter of the Black Panthers. But first, he flew back to the States and before even leaving the airport, announced the founding of his own revolutionary group, the Black Liberation Front. 
A few months later, Collier traveled to Montreal, and that's where the plan was hatched. The idea was to use explosives to sever the head and the torch-bearing arm of the Statue of Liberty, or the damned old bitch, as Collier preferred to call it. And this is where Michelle Duclos comes into the picture. Her support for the independence of Quebec was public knowledge. She'd been involved with the separatist political party, the RIN, and she was close enough to separatist radicals to get her hands on dynamite. Her job was to get the stuff and bring it to New York. True to her word, Duclos left Montreal in a 1961 Rambler. She was carrying 30 sticks of dynamite and three blasting caps. Unfortunately for Duclos and the Black Liberation Front, their scheme was not such a well-kept secret. Duclos had apparently fallen in love with one of the American activists, a guy named Ray Woodall. The happy ending to the plot was written by a rookie policeman who had been on the force only eight months when he infiltrated the extremist group. His work led police to a quiet New York residential area where the dynamite had been hidden. The woman member of the gang buried the explosive in a vacant lot, police say, and the undercover man, Raymond Wood, tipped his fellow policeman. It turns out that Ray Woodall was actually Raymond Wood, an undercover cop. Thanks to coordination among the NYPD, the FBI, and the RCMP, Michel Duclos had been tailed starting in Montreal. With the extreme care of experts, the police successfully trucked the dynamite in their special vehicle to a vault at an army fort where it will be held for evidence. Evidence against... There were arrests. At that time, Duclos was only affiliated with the RIN, publicly at least. But the guys who helped her obtain the dynamite were connected to the FLQ. They planned to make the Statue of Liberty bombing the founding act of their new cell. Instead, they wound up in jail. Michelle Duclos, for her part, pleaded guilty to illegally transporting dynamite into the U.S. She got five years. That was soon commuted to five years probation on the condition that she leave the country. Duclos would spend a few years as a TV host in Lebanon before returning to Quebec, where she climbed the ranks of the civil service. She seldom spoke of her part in the bombing plot. But in this 1968 interview, she tells Radio Canada that she's not a terrorist. She just wanted to make some noise. Le terrorisme, à mon avis, ça se rapporte surtout à quelque chose qui tue la violence et tout ça. Je n'aime pas ça. And besides, she says, terrorists kill people, they're violent. She never imagined that bombing a statue could kill or hurt someone, which seems more than a little naive. But somehow, in this one failed plot, you get a snapshot of a global moment in radical politics, a picture that includes the Cuban Revolution, the U.S. Black Power Movement, Vietnam's National Liberation Front, the Algerian Liberation Front, and of course, the FLQ. Now bear in mind, between 1947 and 1964, more than 30 countries in Africa alone gained independence from their colonial rulers. Many of these were negotiated and relatively peaceful transitions, but some, like Algeria, were protracted, bloody struggles. In 
Algeria. A mass protest against the proposed Flamland government ends with mob action and the gravest threat to the French Republic since the war. For groups like the FLQ, the victory of independence in Algeria became a symbolic inspiration. This was especially and improbably thanks to a psychiatrist from the French West Indies. Franz Fanon was deeply involved with the FLN, the leading anti-colonial group during the Algerian War. His 1961 book, The Wretched of the Earth, looked at the psychology of colonization. It also advocated violence in the name of decolonization. It was immediately and massively influential, and it became the philosophical foundation for nationalist groups around the developing world. The foreword was written by Jean-Paul Sartre, which didn't hurt its popularity either. The founder of the FLQ was certainly a fan. George Shooters kept posters of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara on his walls, alongside Cuban and Algerian flags. And when he was arrested and brought before the court for his role in bombings, he insisted he swear on a copy of The Wretched of the Earth instead of the Bible. And if Franz Fanon provided the ideological argument for revolutionary violence, a 1966 film was the practical teaching aid for guerrilla warfare. The Battle of Algiers was a gritty, verite version of the war. It had the look and feel of a newsreel. Aspiring revolutionaries took inspiration and lessons from the film. And all of this fed a spirit among activists, that there was something going on, a movement that crossed borders and cultures and race. Okay, my name is Philippe Fizembe. I am a Haitian internationalist militant, as one might say. Philippe Fizembe was born in Haiti. He was still a kid when Francois Papadoc Duvalier came to power. It wasn't long before the Fizeme family was looking to escape the dictator's brutal regime. Just as Philippe was about to turn 18, they fled to the U.S. And the U.S. might have been an improvement for the young man until he got his draft notice. He was expected to go fight for his new country in Vietnam. Instead, he split for Montreal and landed in the middle of an ideological melting pot. And though radical movements differed in the particulars, Philippe Fezeme found himself at the intersection where minds met. He was a quick study, and he didn't like what he was learning. Well, this was uh, an anti-colonial, anti-racist, anti-imperialist. We perceive America like an empire. Britain is an empire. France is an empire. And we started to see the connection between all these things, the relationship between their being so fat and, and wealthy and us being so fucking poor. So Fizeme fell in with others who were working, as he puts it, for the betterment of the world. He saw opportunity in the black diaspora that was shaking off colonial rule. And he wanted to bring the voices of that diaspora to Montreal to talk. It corresponded with with the rise of a new, more active leadership in, in all of these movements. 
Like I was 19, I myself surprised to see how I was devoted to this thing. Like, and I had to to learn real quick and fast. Like, that thing was the Congress of Black Writers. It took place over four days in October of 1968 at the McGill University campus in Montreal. It was dedicated to the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. A lot of stories started there. The revolution in Grenada started there. The struggles in Jamaica started there or where took the perspective from there. So this congress is really important in terms of development of the, the struggle. To this day, it's considered to be one of the most important gatherings of black radicals of the era, and for good reason. When we organized this Congress of Black Writers, we had the chance of meeting a lot of different people from different organizations all over the world including the Black Panthers. Stokely Carmichael was a Trinidad-born American civil rights leader who had developed the philosophy behind the Black Power movement. He'd marched with King. He'd campaigned for voting rights for black people, protested against Vietnam. He was close with Muhammad Ali and an honorary prime minister for the Black Panthers. Stokely was a heavyweight, yes, yes. And he could recognize a heavyweight when he... It wasn't only black radicals who turned up. And somehow I was in charge of facilitating the communications between the, these movements and the Quebecois. And I remember that Mario Bachan, when he met with Stokely and Mikhail, uh, On the surface, at least, this was an odd meeting. Mario Bachand had been a member in the first wave of FLQ activity, but he was put out of action just as he was getting started when he was jailed for his role in the Westmount mailbox bombing. That's the one that had put a military bomb expert in hospital for life. After his release, Bashan stayed politically active and became known as an organizer. And Fiza May knew him by reputation to be well-respected within certain FLQ ranks, including intellectual leaders like Pierre Valliere, whose book had caused such a stir. You'll remember that Valliere compared the plight of French Canadians with that of black Americans. You can imagine how that might have gone down with someone like Stokely Carmichael. Fiza May expected Carmichael to bring the Quebecois down a notch or two. He was in for a surprise. That was a very, very hot meeting, at the end of which uh, Stokely made this remark. He said, this guy is either a fucking spy or he is the next fucking John Brown of North America. <laughs> That's what he said of Mario Bashar. The John Brown he refers to was a white abolitionist and insurrectionist. But Philippe Fizeme had a comparison of his own. For me, Mario Bachin was the next, uh, the next, uh, I don't know, the next Trotsky, the next Fidel Castro of this, this country. 
the FLQ had made an impression and found allies. And it wasn't long before its members would come calling on those new allies. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast. In March 1969, the leader of yet another new cell of the FLQ was arrested in connection with a series of bombings. And when word got out, two other members of the cell, Pierre Charette and Alain Allard, hatched a plan to escape before the cops could pick them up as well. They batted around the idea of hiding out in the Laurentide region, just north of Montreal. But then they settled on something else, or someone else, rather. Stokely Carmichael. He'd given Mario Bachan an address in New York City when the two met at the Congress of Black Writers. That address made its way to Charette and Allard. They picked up some cash and boarded a night train south out of Montreal. It's early morning when the two arrive at the house in Harlem. They knock on the door. They're not sure what to expect. You have to remember that Harlem was not only the center of black culture in New York, it was a launch pad for the civil rights movement. On any given day, you'd find politicians, religious leaders, and black liberation activists rallying the community from the street corner or from the pulpit. I know you're against racism, too. We're all against racism. The only difference between you and me is you want to fight racism and racist nonviolently and lovingly, and I'll fight them the way they fight me. There should be no peace on earth for anybody until there's peace also for us. Malcolm X was there. So was Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Stokely Carmichael. They were fighting for better schools, jobs, housing, better policing. We cannot take the law into our hands. But in 1964, there was still only one black cop in Harlem for every six white cops. And when an unarmed 15-year-old black kid was shot and killed by a white off-duty officer, the relationship between civil rights activists and the NYPD, which was already strained, well, it just crumbled into protests and riots. Add to that the unwillingness of white landlords to rent to black tenants, it meant that Harlemites faced some of the highest rents in the city for cramped, decaying housing. By the late 60s, those who could afford it were packing up for neighborhoods in Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, where they'd have access to all the things they'd been fighting for in Harlem. Those who stayed behind were some of the poorest people in the city. Crumbling tenements were abandoned and boarded up. Unemployment rates soared. So did crime. Harlem felt not only desolate in places, but dangerous. So here come these two skinny white kids who speak very little English, fresh off a train and on the run, standing on a stoop in Harlem, asking for help from Stokely Carmichael. Carmichael does invite them in and confirms their story with a lawyer in Montreal. And then he reaches a simple conclusion. He can't hide them. 
I mean, for one, look at them. How do you not notice two white French Canadians in Harlem in 1969? And Carmichael knows he's already under police surveillance for his own radical activities. So there were limits to the solidarity that Carmichael and the Black Panthers would offer. But what Carmichael could do was send the pair to a white ally in another part of the city. Sam Melville was an American activist with revolutionary ambitions. But by late 1968, many in the anti-war and revolutionary movements had all but given up hope for change. It had been a year of massive civil unrest. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. touched off violent protests. And that August, demonstrators at the Democratic National Convention were met with brutality from Chicago police. Sam Melville was looking for inspiration to keep going. Then these two members of the FLQ turn up, and they know how to make bombs. So Melville takes care of them in exchange for lessons on how to start a revolution. It's a happy time for Charette and Alar, but in May, Melville's collective of radicals is infiltrated by the FBI, and the two have to move on. This time, they decide to flee to Cuba. They do a couple of weeks of planning, Melville finds them a gun. His lover, Jane Apert, finds them a flight. The Americans are nervous, but they're excited too. They're part of something bigger. On May 5th, Charette and Alar leave Greenwich Village and head for LaGuardia Airport. Apert and Melville are there to see them off. They buy two first-class tickets to Miami on National Airlines Flight 91. Charette is carrying the 38 caliber handgun from Melville. Alar has a pocket knife. They clear security, and they take their seats. Once in the air, Charette pulls out his gun and demands to see the pilot. Alar stays behind with the knife to keep an eye on the passengers. They're both sweating profusely. They're very nervous. They promise they won't hurt anyone if they're dropped at the Jose Marte airport in Havana. The pilot doesn't see either man as a violent threat, but Havana is a short detour from Miami and he agrees. The airport isn't equipped to handle the Boeing 727, so it takes some time for Cuban soldiers to actually board the plane and escort Charette and Alar out. From there, it's pretty straightforward. The two identify themselves as members of the revolutionary Quebec Liberation Front. They ask for asylum. Each is given a smallpox shot, and then they're bundled into a car and taken to the capital. A couple of first-class tickets, paid for in cash, a gun and a knife was all it took to start a new life. But maybe even the weapons were overkill. Charette would later meet someone in Cuba who got there with only a pair of nail clippers. Back in New York, Jane Apert and Sam Melville were listening to the radio. According to Apert, they were ecstatic. Those little bastards, Melville said. They did it. Later that year, Sam Melville would earn the nickname the Mad Bomber. It was for a series of bombs he set in federal and commercial buildings around New York. Action that would inspire other radical groups, including the Weather Underground, a movement born out of protest against the war in Vietnam and American imperialism. When he was caught, he was sent to Attica Prison. 
Several hundred demonstrators shouting, Attica means fight back, marched into midtown Manhattan, one of two rallies in New York today, to denounce the use of police force at the prison. Melville died in 1971, killed in the Attica prison riots that he helped to organize. Elena Lar is no longer alive, but we did reach out to Pierre Charette. He wouldn't agree to an on-the-record interview with us, but we did meet with him, and he confirmed the details of this wild tale for us. The idea of hijacking a plane with a pistol, a penknife, and a lot of nerve... It might seem far-fetched in the post-9-11 world, but you need to understand something about air travel in 1969. If you fly at all, you're accustomed to the pat-downs, the swabs, the x-rays, the metal detectors. But things used to be a lot more laid back, loose. Brendan Kerner is the author of The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. So you have to keep in mind there was no security at this time in airports. You could basically walk from the curb to the top of the boarding stairs with no ID, not showing anyone a ticket, no one checks your carry-on luggage or your person. Time and patience are running out among the passengers still held hostage aboard the hijacked jets. We then refueled the aircraft fully. He wanted to go to Havana, Cuba. The popular front commandos have confirmed their threat to blow up both jets and passengers unless Palestinian guerrillas held in Europe and Israel are released. Um, And so the airlines are facing these hijackings and they run the calculus and say, well, we can spend millions and millions of dollars implementing security or we can put up with like 20 to 30 hijackings a year. And so they basically mandated for their uh, flight personnel that comply with everything the hijacker wants. Between 1961 and 1973, there were 159 hijackings. And the period of 1968 to 1973 was really wild. There were stretches where a plane a week was being hijacked and diverted. As crazy as that was, the airlines couldn't believe that passengers would tolerate the inconvenience of security screening. But they they obviously argued that air travel would be destroyed that basically no one would be able to get on the planes. They would not so it wasn't until 1973 that the industry started to implement metal detectors and security screening like we're familiar with today. In the meantime, would-be revolutionaries, criminals, and weirdos were commandeering passenger jets to Cuba, although that didn't always turn out to be such a great move. Um, generally, there were two fates that awaited the hijackers who went down there. Upon landing, they would be interrogated by the secret police, The majority, they decided, were kind of harmless. So they would kind of put them up in this dormitory in South Havana, and they would basically just live there and eke out an existence. And a lot of them ended up being fed up with uh, the Spartan lifestyle and the difficulties of what they had to face and ended up begging to come back. A small number of these hijackers, however, were determined by the secret police to be dangerous. And they were actually imprisoned in these horrible gulag where they were forced to harvest sugarcane. There's some real horror stories about violence and torture that took place in those gulags. So yeah, very few of them found the, the utopia they were looking for. Pierre Charette and Elena Lahr certainly didn't. As relatively comfortable as their life was in Cuba. Their handlers settled them into a hotel, the Vedada, where they met with other exiles, mostly from other Latin American countries. They found earlier FLQ members there as well, including Mario Bachan. And they wouldn't be the last to arrive. A Canadian ambassador from that period remembers FLQ members asking Castro for weapons training 
anything to pass the time and build on their revolutionary skills. But Castro was having none of it. Canada was now under the leadership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was somewhat supportive of Castro. Charette felt more sympathy from the Algerian government in Cuba. The North Koreans, too. They would even feed the pair and invite them over to the embassy for movie nights. Not long after he returned to Canada, Pierre Charette spoke to Radio Canada about his experience in Cuba. La réalité cubaine m'a permis de constater, à un moment donné, que l'individu était sacrifié euh, au profit d'intérêts collectifs. In Cuba, he saw individual rights sacrificed in the name of the collective good. And that wasn't something he could support, he says, even as he saw living conditions improve for Cubans. FLQ members would eventually all drift out of Cuba, one after another, some for Algeria, others for France. Pierre Charette would be one of the last to make it home in 1979, after 10 years of exile. It was a bitter parting. He wanted out badly, but the Cuban government denied him an exit visa. He wound up sleeping in the doorway of the Canadian embassy in Havana until the Canadian government finally intervened to bring him home. On his return to Canada, Charette did a bit of time, but in the end, the government pardoned him for his role in the FLQ bombing campaign of 1968. Fourteen years after they hijacked that plane, the U.S. tried to extradite Charette and Allard for air piracy. But, get this, hijacking a plane wasn't illegal in Canada in 1969, so the Supreme Court of Canada dismissed the case. But the Americans haven't let it go. I don't know if you're aware of this, but police all over North America use this hashtag on Twitter. They call it Wanted Wednesday. It's a chance to share info and mugshots of suspects and convicted criminals on the loose. Well, somehow in the course of our research, we came across one of those Wanted Wednesday posts. It was from the FBI's New York Twitter account from back in 2016. It looks like a classic Wanted poster. There are two pictures. The first is of a young man in his early 20s with long hair and a beard. The second, the same young man, but looking decidedly more clean cut. And above those pictures, the words, Wanted, Jean-Pierre Charette. Should be considered armed and dangerous. If you have any information concerning this person, please contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. Charette is in his 70s now, living a quiet life in Montreal. He's warm and forthcoming. He has a mischievous laugh. Having spent time in his home, I can attest that he is armed with an impressive collection of classical music CDs. While Pierre Charette was meeting with revolutionaries in Cuba, Philippe Fizamé was back in Montreal, thinking about revolution through the lens of his own unique life experience in Haiti, in the U.S., and in Canada. Philippe Fizamé has asked me to meet him in the café at the Quebec National Library. This is the storehouse of the province's history and culture. It's a bustling, modern building. Fizamé carries himself with an easy confidence, but there's gravitas to him as well. It's easy to picture him at 19, stoking the fires of revolution. Fizeme says that in Montreal he found solidarity, but a complicated solidarity. We supported, in principle, the idea that if the Quebec people 
once it's independence, they should be allowed to be independent. In this sense, that there was a solidarity, right? Protest all you like, he says, and we'll join you on those picket lines. But the Quebecois, they weren't living under a dictatorship, under the threat of death. This question of use of terrorism, that is not necessary here. Uh, as a Haitian, my position was always, look, man, like, we'll use violence to overthrow Duvalier. But that is a specific situation. If you use violence here, this will not help because you only must use these violent methods when there is no hope of other form of political fight. So you must have then believed that, in effect, the democratic pathways hadn't been fully explored. Well, I still still believe that in retrospective. This is what we believe in these times, and it was difficult to tell them that, but we did, like, the Cubans even told them that. Like, look, man, that's, that's not the way to do it. Don't start with the position that because there is a revolution come through, through violence that you have to jump on that weapon. That's the last resort. And if you are going to resort to violence, well, you better be sure you've got the people on your side, he says. Of course, that's easily said. I think that in some ways, their contact with the West Indian movement, with the Haitian movement, and some of the Afro-American movements was beneficial for them in the sense that they did not go all out in some anarchist type or uncalled for violence. You used the analogy earlier of the revolutionaries who shake the tree and the revolutionaries who get to pick up the fruit on the ground. Do you feel as though Quebec society has been able to pick up fruit from the tree shakers of, of that time? You bet they have. <laughs> this is a, a very ingenious people, man. Just, just think of that. They managed to get... Fizeme says the ingeniousness of Quebec politics is in how the province has leveraged its position in confederation. He points out that at one time there was Pierre Trudeau, a Quebecer, as prime minister, and René Levesque as premier. He says it was like having two sons competing to bring the best goodies home to mother. So they, they negotiate their way through very nicely. Fizeme says when he first arrived in Montreal, he came as a Haitian with a very specific revolutionary dream. With a vision, a romantic vision of going back and getting rid of Papa Doc. Then I started to think in terms of the whole West Indian archipelago. Then I started to think of Africa, of Latin America. And he didn't stop there, which is why at the age of 81, he's still introducing himself as an international militant. Now, with time, I realized that I can think of the whole planet. That means that I would feel very much at ease 
promoting a world revolution because it's part of it. Like the question started that what is to become of us West Indian and blacks? And then it ended as, hey, what is becoming of this world? Groups like the Black Panthers and the Quebec Liberation Front grew from an ideal, a belief that people have the power to throw off the shackles of colonialism and oppression and make a better world, that there's a more just way to order society, and that revolution can make it happen. The movements inspired and nourished one another through words and solidarity and sometimes weapons. But there were powerful obstacles in the way. In the U.S., the FBI would infiltrate black power groups and derail the movement. Algerian rebels would win independence, only to see the country slide into a new form of authoritarian rule. And in Quebec, as the decade wore on, the FLQ seemed no closer to its revolutionary goals. Years of bombing had landed members in jail, and in a couple of cases in the grave. And while the trial of Pierre Vallière had won public sympathy for the FLQ cause, it didn't translate into broad revolutionary action. And even that hard-won sympathy would fizzle when escalating FLQ action brought the country to a crisis in 1970. The story of that crisis begins in episode 6. But first... It looked like a war zone. When Bob Cote faced the most prolific bomber in the history of the FLQ... I was faced with people full of blood. Uh, wow, the, the biggest blast I had ever seen. That's coming up in Episode 5 of Recall, How to Start a Revolution. Brendan Kerner is the author of The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. He spoke to Boise State Public Radio in 2019. This series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Plourd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris Oak. Mixing by Graham McDonald. The digital producer is Emily Cannell. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And our executive producer is Arif Narani. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.